Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, one quick note before we head into our Bible study. How many have gone through the game of life? Show of hands, show of hands. Yeah, a whole bunch of you have. And we usually take about 100 uh, people a year through the game of life. If you haven't been through the game of life and uh, you want to find out more about what Desert Breeze is about, it's the uh, class I have the privilege of teaching. I absolutely love this class. And it will fortify your faith, believe me. And it will help you to understand what it means to find your deepest delight in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And we want to help you to do that. And it's called discipleship, and it involves a 5G process, and we'll take you through that here uh, through this class. Eight-week class, uh, you can uh, see the dates there. It's, I think it's the second week of uh, September. We kick it off. You can sign up in the foyer. The class does fill up uh, very quickly, and so we would encourage you to take that class. It's a two-hour uh, Tuesday night for eight weeks, and so I uh, look forward to meeting you, and you'll get a chance to meet our leaders also. They'll come in and give their testimony, and you really find out what the heart of Desert Breeze is all about. We are almost finished up. We've got this week, two more weeks, we're going to be wrapping up this study through the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. It has been phenomenal. It has been awesome. I've loved this uh, study. More Than Conquerors, and uh, that's been the series title. This weekend, we're going to talk about God is for us. That's our title. And uh, grab your sermon notes. And you can see here, as we begin our uh, intro, some biblical truths can leave you almost speechless. That's how I have found with this study. They can leave you almost speechless, and at the same time, suspicious. That might sound like a contradiction. No, it's not, actually, because that's a little bit of the struggle that's going on in the hearts and lives of all of us. And at the same time, they can leave you suspicious because it seems too good to be true. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 30, that's what we've already covered in our study thus far, has left Paul almost speechless. We're going to only look at two verses, and we're going to begin our reading in verse 31. He begins our text in verse 31 with these words, what then shall we say to these things? He's overwhelmed. He's almost like he's saying, oh my goodness, this is beyond words. I'm speechless. And yet, on the other hand, he knows that these truths are so immeasurably spectacular that we will all struggle to really believe them. So here's where we are in the study. So Paul gives us five questions of relentless, intense gospel logic to beat us out of our disbelief. How many need to be beat out of your disbelief from time to time? How many would you say just regularly, just beat me until I believe? Okay, that almost sounds rude and crude, but that's true. We need that. That's why you come here, so that I will beat you out of your unbelief. That doesn't sound right, does it? Welcome to Desert Rees, where we will beat you out of your unbelief. Uh, But that's, in essence, what he's doing here. I mean, he has just hit us with some spectacular promises in verses 1 through 30. And now he kind of really relentlessly, intensely gives us gospel logic to beat us out of our disbelief. It's logic on fire. Look at your notes there. Five unanswerable questions. So here's, here's what he's wanting us to do. So I just gave you some spectacular promises and... 
it leaves him speechless, and at the same time, it creates sometimes suspicion within all of us because we're wondering, this is almost too good to be true. Is this really, is this really true? And then he says, no, no, think about it. Think, think. Now, the foundation of faith is thinking. The foundation of faith is thinking. And in verse 31, it's almost as if he's saying, you're feeling afraid? Then you're not thinking. You're not thinking out the implications of if God is for us, who can be against us? You're not thinking about God's power. Verse 32 is another verse we're going to be looking at here this morning. He says, you're feeling worried? You're not thinking out the implications of the fact that if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things? You're not thinking about God's generosity. And then the next, uh, next week, we'll cover verses 33 and 34. Look at verse 33 there. It's on your notes, not the verse, but the, the idea here. So you're feeling guilty? Who will bring any charge? It's, it's God who justifies us. He's talking about God's pardon. So if you're feeling guilty, you're not thinking out the implications of the fact that, that he has, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You feeling condemned? Verse 34, you feeling condemned? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who died, who, who raised, who was raised, who intercedes for us. He's, he's talking about Christ's work. And then verse 35, you feeling forsaken? Who shall, for, who shall for, uh, separate us from the love of Christ? You're not thinking out the implications of the God of the galaxies who loves you more than anybody. And then, of course, verses 36 through 39, the answer to all of these questions, no one, nothing, nothing. And so here's what we're looking at here this morning, heaven's language. That's verse 31, heaven's language. And then we're going to look at uh, heaven's logic. That's a verse 32, only covering two verses. Pretty heavy-duty stuff, though, in these two verses, pretty profound. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin... uh, with a word of prayer, ask for God's help, and then we'll dive into this text and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. We echo the verses found in Psalm 86, verse 5 and 11. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Teach us your way, O Lord that we may walk in your truth. Give us undivided hearts that we may fear your name because if we fear you, if we know that you are for us, we will fear nothing or no one else. Who can be against us? We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. So take a look at this text. So I've still been doing the card thing here. Memorize. This, these were a little bit more uh, easier to memorize because I've, I've, I've known these. I, I've uh, memorized them out of the NIV. I encourage you to do this. In fact, uh, I was reminded last night by a guy that was here. He said that he's been actually reading this text over and over again before he comes in and we study it. He says it just means so much more to him. It just really pops off the page to him. And so I would encourage you to do the same thing. Anytime you know what we're going to be studying ahead of time, study it ahead of time. Uh, Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. (laughs) Whatever. Bear with me here this morning. So study it ahead of time. If you know what we're going to study ahead of time, then study it ahead of time, okay? Study it before you get here, and then when when we get together and we study it, oh my goodness, it's pretty amazing. I've been meditating on these two verses throughout the week along with all the other verses, but this is what it says, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? He's speechless. Verses 1 through 30. Oh, my goodness. What can I say? And so now he's going to kind of restate it here. And that's kind of where we are in the study. He's going to say, okay, okay, let me see if I can come up with other words. So he's almost speechless, not quite, because he's going to give us some some things that he's going to say. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
That's verse 31. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Oh my goodness. That's, this is crazy stuff. This is unbelievable. Now, let me read it to you from uh, the message. How many are familiar with the message? It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. It's fun to kind of go back to it from time to time. But listen to what the, the message says, Romans 8, 31 and 32. So, what do you think? With God on your side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? Yes, I love that. (laughs) Man, this is good stuff. And I know that I'm a whole lot more excited than what you are this morning. (laughs) And I hope by the time you leave here, you're just as excited as I am. Because this stuff is is revolutionary. Okay, so let's uh, dive into this. Heaven's language, first of all. What then shall we say to these things? And, we're, and I put down there, we're going to review verses 1 through 30, but that's, there's too much to review here, and you're going to have to go online and review it yourself, okay? And you need to get the DB app and listen to these, and you need to listen to them over and over and over again. And listen, this is how it works. You need to revel, you need to revel in who God is and what he's done to you, done for you, until it ignites joy deep within your heart. That's how it works out in our lives. And that's what I've been doing as I reflect on these uh, verses. That's what meditation does. Is you re- so you're reveling, you're enjoying, you're rehearsing, you're thinking about all that God is and what he's done for you until, boy, I'll tell you what, you'll have that unspeakable and glorious, indestructible joy indescribable, indestructible joy if you begin to do that. And and so that's really what he's doing here. What then shall we say to these things? So let me just not review all of these verses. Paul is speechless here, but let's just look at the last couple weeks. Verses 18 through 27, we we learned in in the midst of this broken world, we have a joy in God that, that that the worst kind of suffering cannot destroy. You guys remember that? Okay, shake your head just patronize me here a little bit just by yeah pastor Ray, woo! don't do that but uh but just go yeah i remember that okay we talked about that a few weeks ago if you didn't if you weren't here go online listen to it we have a joy in god that the worst kind of suffering cannot destroy and then verses 28 through 30 last weekend's message we talked about the foundation of that joy this astounding promise or these astounding promises verses 28 through 30 remember Remember that famous verse, Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And so we came up with three statements as it related to verses 28 through 30. My bad things will work out for my what? For my good. My truly good things cannot be taken from me. That's verses 29 through 30. And my best things are yet to come. And we see that in verse 30, that we may also be glorified with him. That's what he talks about there. And so he's just, he's speechless about these things. And now this takes us to verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, here's your first fill in the blank. It's about time. Um, There are not more terrifying words, there are not more terrifying words in the universe than the words God is against you. 
There are not more terrifying words in the universe than the words that God is against you. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught the greatest sermon he ever preached. And it's at the end of that sermon, and they've always been very terrifying words for me to really look at my own life and, and to search me, O God, and know my heart. Am I on track with you? Listen to what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, on what day? Judgment day. On that day, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, this is Jesus, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And let that land on you just for a moment. Because what is he saying here? You can profess to be a Christian. You can have orthodox doctrine. You can have great passion. You can even help people to experience life change. But not know God. I mean, he goes through this whole list of things and, and he says, but I don't know you. See, the absence of these traits demonstrates you're not a Christian, but the presence of these traits doesn't demonstrate you are. Just because you can hit the list here, like a punch list, doesn't mean that you're a believer. That's what he's saying. That's the point that he's, he's saying here. Here's the next fill in the blank. There are not more comforting words in the universe than the words God is for you. Those, those are unbelievably comforting words. And I wanted you to kind of see the contrast between the two. You're going to fit into one of those categories or the other. There, there's, no, there's no middle zone, okay? Well, I'm kind of like in between both of those. No, you're not. You're either one or the other. You're going to either hear that one, I don't know you, or you're going to have that other that, yeah, God is for you. Now, how do we know that God is for us? Well, James 4, 6, you're probably familiar with this. It kind of tells us that God does what to the proud? He opposes the proud and he gives what to the humble? He gives grace to the humble. So it kind of tells us that, that so there's a difference between pride and humility. Pride, God opposes. And in humility, God gives grace to his favor is on the humble. And, and this is what has when people ask me, well, what's the difference between uh, Christianity and all the uh, other major religions of our world? And I always say, well, that's easy. That, that's an easy answer. Have you, have you studied it? Most people haven't studied it. A lot of Christians haven't even studied it. They couldn't even tell you the difference. Do you know what the difference is? Here, here's the difference. The difference is that all the major religions, study them. I've got a ton of books of the major religions in my library. I've studied it. I've looked at it. I've examined it, and uh, the major religions basically say it like this. The good are in, the bad are out. The good meaning you've got to hit their punch list. They all have a punch list. They all have a, a moral codes, set of ethics, set of things, a standard that you have to hit. And you, you, you hit it, you're in. You're one of us. Got to do these things. And then you have uh, our God's approval. But you guys know this, that Christianity is not that. 
It's not a standard that you hit and then God accepts you. And in fact, in Christianity, it's not the good are in, the bad are out. It's the humble are in and the proud are out. You, you knew that, didn't you? Did you know that? That you need to know that. That's, that's really important. It's the humble are in and the proud are out. All you need all you need is need, and a lot of people don't have that because of pride. I mean, you can see it in what Jesus is saying here. We'll make reference back to it in just a moment. And here's your next fill in the blank. If you don't feel forever indebted to God for who he is and what he's done for you, then you don't understand the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 it says the cross, we're talking about what, what God has done for us, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for those who are being saved. Galatians 6.14, remember what Paul said there? He said, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. See, there's a major difference between using God and serving God, using God. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's, that's using God versus serving God. Does the will of my Father, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a major difference between the two. It's the difference between you feeling that God owes you for your goodness versus you forever owing God for his. So let me ask you this, what do you boast about? If I were to hang out with you, what, what do you make a big deal about? What are you boasting in? And have uh, you been uh, enjoying the Olympics? You guys, like three of us, okay? That's pretty disheartening. How many, how many have watched uh, some of the Olympics? Okay, show of hands. How many have not watched any bit of the Olympics? Show of hands, show of hands. What are you guys, anti-American? <laughs> you know what, we're just gonna stop the service right now. There's some Olympics on right now. Let's turn on the TV screen and let's watch it just so that you can walk out of here and say, I did watch a little bit of the Olympics. No, you probably had better things to do like laundry or dishes. <laughs> I understand. I understand. But here, uh, what's I, what I find fascinating about the Olympics, and I've watched the Olympics, and uh, I'm going to be really sad that they're over tonight. I'm going to go through withdrawals. So please pray for me. But that's not going to stop my illustrations about the Olympics, okay? I'm going to continue to dog you until the, the next Olympics, okay? Every weekend I'll give an illustration about the No, I won't do that. But what's fascinating about the Olympics is when they do the post-race interviews, and to hear what they boast in. Isn't that fascinating? You kind of spot the Christians among them. Have you noticed that? Did you notice the gals last night after that relay? They all huddled up. You know what they were doing. The commentator even said that. Oh, they're praying. Allison Felix, who she, after an earlier relay, they did the same thing. So it's fascinating to hear what they boast in. Let me ask you this question. <laughs> I asked the, the congregation last night, and they were kind of like, I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe they were asleep, I don't know. But um, no, they weren't. But uh, I said, so what do you think Usain Bolt boasts in? 
Do, do you, uh, do, is he a humble guy? Do you think he's humble? How many think he's a humble guy? Anybody? Anybody think he's a humble guy? Because if you did raise your hand, we'd be praying for you at the end of the service, okay? That guy is so full of himself, it's unbelievable. And yet he's a phenomenal athlete, but he's not boasting in God, and I don't think he has a clue about where he got that gifting. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. It's pretty frightening. And yet it's, it's pretty interesting to hear what these, uh, and, and by the way, I mean, he's certainly a phenomenal athlete, but listen, there's three things that makes a good athlete. Some of you are going to start to take notes right now, aren't you? Okay, now, here's three things that make, make a really a, a world-class athlete, and that's desire, training, and DNA. If you don't have the DNA, you're going to have all the desire and all the training in the world, and you'll never be able to run as fast as he has run. And that DNA is God-given. And so it's fascinating when you really look at, at people and what they boast in. What do you boast in? And, and, and we're just as guilty here as a church, but I've gone to other churches in the valley, big mega churches, and I hear them boasting about what they have done as opposed to what God has done for them. And when you fall prey to boasting, oh, look at what we've done. Oh, we've given away this much to this many people, and this is how many people we're reaching, and whoa, yeah. I mean, I think we need to certainly celebrate that in the name of Christ and knowing that we couldn't do any of that if it wasn't for him. In him we live, we move, we have our being. Our very essence comes from him. And uh, so why, what are we boasting in? What are we boasting in? And, and I know that people want to get on the bandwagon. When you got a church that's that successful, ho, ho, they're successful. I heard some friends just recently, they were asked, why do they go to that church? Well, that church, they give away so many bicycles every Christmas to a lot of poverty kids in the area. And, I, and I'm thinking, wow, that's really wonderful, but where's the boasting in God? See, that's what he's saying here. And I'm not, I think that's wonderful that they're doing that, but I think that we can lose focus sometimes and not realize why we have what we have. In fact, I was, I was thinking about this, and I wrote this down as I was reflecting on it. Pride takes credit for what it could not achieve on its own. Pride takes credit for what it could not achieve on its own. Humility gives credit to the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes from so what are, you, what are you boasting in? What are you boasting in? I'm, you know, and I, I absolutely love the Olympics. I love the interviews. I love what many of them have accomplished. And yet I'm always reminded of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength. That would be athleticism. So the strong, uh, the rich, the wise... Don't let them boast on their strength or their wisdom or their riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows God. I love uh, the words of C.S. Lewis. He says, um, he says this. He says, the man who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God alone. So, so listen, here, here's what I'm saying. Usain Bolt, phenomenal athlete. Nine gold medals in the Olympics. $30 million in net worth. And yet, the Bible says that's nothing compared to what we have in knowing God. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
the Bible in C.S. Lewis, okay? <laughs> he said it too. He was just emphasizing the Bible. It's like, yeah, okay. And so, uh, and so that's, that's, that's really important. That's why Paul says in verse 31, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If, if there aren't times when you're reading the Bible or when you come to worship and we're studying God's word, you're not speechless. You're not like, oh my goodness, that's overwhelming. There should be, as you study God, as I said last weekend, if you can study theology without it leading you to awe and wonder, then you haven't studied God. The study of God is, is really more about celebrating mystery than conquering it. So there should be times when you're studying God's word where you go, wow, over his greatness, and you go, mmm, over his goodness. You're just overtaken by it. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to begin to take these truths and revel in who God is and what he's done for you until his Holy Spirit begins to light it on fire in your heart. Logic on fire. Oh, my goodness. It, it, that's what begins to transform your life. Now, we get to a really, uh, next section here, which is really important, and uh, God is for us. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is for us? And uh, Amy Augustine gave me this illustration last night that I thought was really good. And uh, I'm going to kind of use it a little bit differently than how she told it to me. But let me just say that you told me, you told me, hey, I know Michael Phelps. In fact, he just, you guys know that he lives here in, in Arizona, in Phoenix, actually. He just bought a, a home, 2.5 million. Yeah, he won 28 gold medals, and I know all this. In fact, we, I hung out with him at the Starbucks over there in Scottsdale for a little bit. And my, my question for you, okay, you might know Michael Phelps, but does Michael Phelps know you? Because that's the most important question. Okay, yeah, you tell me you know God, but does God know you? Because that's what he's saying here in this story. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, he says, I don't know you. You've done all these great things, but, but does he know you? What does that mean that he knows you and that you know him? Here it is. There's never a moment when you are not an object of your father God's undivided attention, unconditional affection, and unhindered action. Let me walk through those one at a time. So, so this has to, these are one of those truths that should boggle your mind, should overwhelm you that he knows you, and then out of this, you know him. He takes the initiative in, in, in the knowing, and this is what it is. This is what it means that God is for us, that, that we have his undivided attention. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, talks to us about it. It's a phenomenal psalm. Meditate on that some Sunday afternoon. It's, it'll overwhelm you about the intimacy of God. And, and in Psalm 139, 1 through 6, it tells us here... Uh, that God is omniscient. What does it mean that God is omniscient? Anybody? He's all-knowing, so God knows everything about me. And then in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, it says that God is omnipresent. God is always there for me. I love Psalm 8 and how it puts it there for us. David is certainly overwhelmed with this, the fact that, that he has God's undivided attention. Now think about that. I have his undivided attention. So when I look over to the sideline, he's not doing something else, he's, he's focused on me. I, I see his eyes on me. That's, that's the idea here. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4, he starts and ends that psalm by saying, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
And then he goes on in that and he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him. And not just that, not only do you think thoughts about me, you care about me. I can have relationship with you. That's what he's overwhelmed with. The creator of the universe, and I can interact with him. That he knows me and I know him. So do you know God? Do you have a sense of that overwhelming that you have his undivided attention, that he loves you like that? That takes you to the next one, unconditional affection. Remember Psalm 63.3? That his steadfast love is better than what? Anybody? Better than life. His love for you is better than any romance you could ever find in this world. There's no romance that can give you the love that he can give you. You guys know that, don't you? We talk, we've talked about that. There's no job that can give you the, the security that only he can give you. There's no success in this world that can give you the significance that only he can give you. His steadfast love is better than life. I love his steadfast love. I love his love. And it's, it's, that's the idea, unconditional affection. Zephaniah 3.17 You'll get a kick out of this. This is a good one. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And when I was a little boy, when I would go up, and I just want to cry about it this I'd go up to Flag, my grandfather up there, who was a pastor, and when he would see me, he would exult over me, he would rejoice over me, and sweep me up into his arms and love on me. That's that verse. I got a dim glimpse of my daddy in heaven and how much he adores me and loves me. Now, I do that to all my grandkids. When my grandkids come over to the house, You're here. And, and some of them run right up into my arms and wrap their arms around me and I smother them with kisses and then others of them run from me. <laughs> Grandpa's freaking us out. But I chase him down and love on them. And I want to do that, you know, and I adore my kids. I want to do that to my kids, but I know that they would never come over after that. I mean... <laughs> They'd start coming home after that one. They'd just like freak out. But you, you parents know that. You love your kids. If you've got grandkids, oh my goodness. It's like, whoa! That's that verse. That's that. Listen to me. You have a daddy in heaven who rejoices over you. He looks at this little girl and that little girl and that little boy and that little boy over there, and, and he exalts over you. He rejoices. I mean, that's what he's saying here in this verse. It's just, he says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Kind of like what we saw in the prodigal son's story. Remember the father, when he saw the, the son from afar off, he ran out to him and smothered him with kisses. 
That's what your daddy in heaven wants to do for you. That's his affection. Oh, my goodness. If you could get a sense of that, I mean, that, it, that's what overwhelms me. That's what fires me up. That's what keeps me going. I'm getting old. And, man, I love, I love the fact that I have his undivided attention, unconditional affection. In fact, it even tells us in Psalm 139, 17 through 18, his thoughts... Let me paraphrase it. His thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. What's that about? Next time you go to the the sea, the ocean, pick up a handful of sand and let it run through your fingers and go, whoa, that's how many thoughts you think about me? That's amazing. It's poetic language. It's almost like he's saying, I can't get you out of my mind. Sounds like a song, huh? Or I can't take my eyes off of you. There's a song. Yeah, that's, that's God. That's what the Bible saying to us about God, to us. And then the next one is unhindered action. Remember the beating that Job went through? You guys, how, many, how many have ever read through the book of Job? And you go, man, I can't bear the pain of this anymore. I got to skip to the end of the book. How many of you just, I mean, that's a long book. How many of you say, oh my goodness, it's just, it's almost unbearable, it's relentless, it's like all the, the whining and the moaning going on, and he's in a small group that he needs to leave that small group, okay? <laughs> I said, you need to leave that small group a few chapters earlier. Why are you hanging out with these dudes? These guys are miserable comforters. Kick them out of your small group. Start a new small group, Job. Come on, dude. I mean, that's what I'm thinking, and that's what you need to do too if you get in a small group that are like Job's comforters. In fact, tell him that. Say, you guys are just like Job's miserable comforters. Thank you very much. And so by the time you get to the end of the story, though, it's pretty profound because Job never saw why he suffered, but he saw God and that was enough. And, and, and he actually says in that last chapter, he said, I'd heard of you, I'd heard of you, but now I've seen you. See, so you understand what, he, he not only knew God, he knew that God knew him. And, and, and the reason why he, he said that because And he knew that is because, listen to what he says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This didn't happen by accidents or happenstance or anything. God, my, my life is divinely orchestrated by you. Yeah, a lot of horrible things have happened to me, yet my life is in your hands and I trust in your loving, wise control over my life. That's someone that knows God and knows that God knows him. That's, that's pretty profound. Psalm 46, 1 through 3, if you're going to the hospital and your friends aren't, you know, your friend's not doing well, this would be a good verse to take with you. God, Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Then he goes on to describe almost an earthquake or a tsunami that's happening. It's just like the worst of the worst that could happen to you. But because God is with us, he's our refuge. He's our strength, a very present help in trouble. He's here with us right now. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 tells us that God is omnipotent. God is powerfully at work for my good and his glory. So God is there with us in trouble because he has been with us all alone. He is the best gift of his grace. Let me say it again. He, he is the best gift of his grace. He, his presence in your life is the best gift of his grace. So there is not a moment when you are not an object of your Father God's undivided attention, unconditional affection, unhindered action. I like what Augustine says. 
God loves all of us as if there were only one of us. And A.W. Tozer kind of helps us to understand that. I mean, this is mind-blowing, but an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. So here's your next couple fill-in-the-blanks. So during times of suffering, you will feel abandoned by God. You're going to feel abandoned by God during times of suffering. That's a fact. But the fact is he will never ever leave you or forsake you. You're going to feel it like it's a fact, but the fact is he will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, literally the, the Greek puts it like that. Never, ever, ever, ever leave you. Ever leave you. I love uh, what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 17. Listen to what he says. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. The Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, pretty prominent person in the early church, and no one stood by him. That's what he's saying. He He was deserted by all. How many have ever felt deserted? Ever felt deserted? Ever had people desert you, family members, friends, you're going through hard times and nobody showed up, nobody called, nobody was there to help you, nobody let you cry on their shoulder, nobody, that's where Paul is. Now check this out, this is what he says, may it not be charged against them. Is he a bitter man? No. And why, why is he not bitter? Right here, but the Lord stood by me and strengthen me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, the presence of God. What did I say? He is the best gift of his grace. And usually we don't realize it until we have been deserted by all. We're all alone, and he shows up powerfully, and he's there for us and loves us, and that's what he's talking about there. Now, sometimes people will think, wow, all this emphasis about we have his undivided attention and unconditional affection and unhindered action, won't that make someone really self-absorbed? No. That's not going to turn you in on yourself. It's not going to make you self-absorbed. It's going to make you very God-glorifying and other-centered very God-absorbed and other-centered because you already have your treasure. You have a sense of contentment in him. And, and of course, out of that abundance of his grace, then you're going to begin to think about others in your life. And, and so here's the next section of that. So I, that's kind of defining if God is for us. But what does that mean? Who can be against us? Who can be against you? That doesn't mean no one will be against you. In fact, here's your next fill in the blank. No, no one can be successfully against us. That's what that means. So when the Bible says God is for us, who can be against us, it just means that no one can be successfully against us. Now, check this out. The efforts of any adversary, how, ma- how many, uh, the Bible actually defines three kind of categories of adversaries. You guys know what those uh, adversaries are? Okay, somebody, yeah. So there's three, three categories. There's sin, our own sinful nature. How many would say that you could, sometimes can be your own worst adversary? 
If I could kick in the seat of the pants, the one who gives me the most problem in my life, I wouldn't be able to sit down for a week. Okay, I'd be kicking myself in the seat of the pants, okay? And so, yeah, sin, Satan. How many are aware of the fact that we have an adversary like Satan? And then we have society, the culture, the values of our culture. That can even be people within our own home that can be our adversaries. Now listen to what he says here. He says, no one can successfully be successfully against us. The efforts of any adversary will be thwarted. This is part of your notes. Will be thwarted and his aim to be against you will be turned into Christ-exalting, faith-fortifying, soul-sanctifying. Notice I said painful benefit. Is it going to be painful? Yes, of course. Is it going to benefit you? No doubt about it. But there will be a point in your life where you'll be able to say, as we said last week, where Joseph looked into the eyes of his perpetrators and said, uh, Genesis 50-20, Genesis 50-20 is the Old Testament version of Romans 8-28. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Those of you that are come from my background, you're probably familiar with Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against me will what? Will prosper. How many are familiar with that verse? That's what he says. 1 John 4, 4, here's another great one. Greater is he that is in me than he that is where? In the world. So what is he saying? He's saying that there's, hey, bring it on. Bring it on, whatever, whatever is going to come my way. I have within me, through his presence in my life, to be able to face anything. That's, that's what he's saying. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, not only does he promise no successful adversaries, that's heaven's language, but also he promises total, overflowing, never-ending generosity. This is heaven's logic. And he says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a little awkward when I read that because I've memorized it differently than that, but it's very similar to that. He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Oh my goodness. So what is he doing here? This is an argument from greater to lesser, from, from hard to easy, from impossible to possible. It is the irrefutable and comforting logic of heaven. Here's your next fill in the blank. Nothing we can ever receive can possibly compare, can possibly compare with God's gift of, sac of the sacrifice of his own son in our place for our sins. That's what he's saying. He's just trying to get us to think Oh, you feel all alone, you feel abandoned, you feel like God's not gonna meet your needs. You're not thinking, you're not thinking out the implications of the cross. This is what he's done for you. That's what he wants us to understand. So verse 32, he who did not spare his own son. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Who is this Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God who is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. God is one in essence but three in person. It is a paradox but not a contradiction. That's the Trinity. And so what it's telling us, what we know here is that they have known and loved each other, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for all eternity beyond what we could ever comprehend. Unbelievable relationship and deep love and knowledge of one another. Now, here's the point that just 
stunned me as I was thinking about this and it just overwhelmed me and brought me to tears. Verse 32, it says, his own son, for he did not spare his own, his own son. And then as I quoted John 3, 16, his only son. And remember Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. And at least twice while Jesus was on earth, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You need to change the verse there on your notes. It's Matthew 3, 17. Just add a one there. It's not 3, 7. And then Matthew 17, 5. Two places in the Bible. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now here's the point I think we can understand. There is no love like the love of a father for a son or a daughter. Let me say that again. There is no love like the love of a father for a son or a daughter. Now, many of you watch the Olympics, if you watched a lot of the, uh, the swimming, and if you watched at the end of some of Michael Phelps' races, did you notice that he would go over to the stands? Anybody see some of that when he went over the stands? And he'd go over to the stands, and who was over in the stands? Okay, so his, his mom, his fiance, and his little, little boy, Boomer. His little boy, Boomer. And, he, and so it was really fascinating. And then when they interviewed him, he's just like, Michael Phelps was just tickled to death. I am so tickled to death. I'm so glad. I mean, he was just like, he was excited that Boomer was there to watch him. And I'm thinking, that's goofy. That kid's incoherent. He's nowhere to be found. He's only like two or three months old. He hasn't watched you one bit. How many of you are thinking like, that's crazy. You guys like me like like, and, and so, like, what are you talking about, Michael? This kid's asleep. <laughs> and yet, as I looked at that and explored it a little bit more, I began to realize that's the heart of a father for a son. He loves that little boy. And... Years down the road, he'll show him pictures. Hey, you were there. You were there. You were incoherent, but you were there. You were sleeping. And your mom had earmuffs over so he wouldn't be startled by all the noise and all that was going on. That's, that's the heart of a father for his son. He loves that little boy. And many say that his life has really been transformed as a result of that. Now, I've got two sons and a daughter. I love them. I adore them. I've got seven, seven grandsons and two granddaughters. I love them. Oh my goodness. This daddy... This grandpa just loves those kids. And I know you have similar feelings, but it is beyond comprehension that I would give up my own son, daughter, or grandson, or granddaughter to be betrayed, abandoned, mocked, beaten, spit on, nailed to a cross, pierced, with a sword, 
like an animal being butchered to pay the penalty for someone else's sins. So when it says, his own son, he did not spare his own son for you. That's what overwhelms me. That happened. That's for real. That's more real than anything you could ever experience in your life. This was an infinitely horrible thing for the Son of God to be treated this way. Sin reached its worst in those hours. It was exposed for what it really is, an attack on God, a rejection of God, an assault on the truth and the beauty of God, but God did not spare his own son this treatment for you and me. Believe me, when that gets a hold of you, that got a hold of me a number of years ago. Listen, game over. I've never been the same. It revolutionizes your life. You know, when, it, when the Bible tells you that there's not a moment when we're not an object of his undivided attention, unconditional affection, and unhindered action, it means it. Because that was written down in blood. For you and I, Listen to what it says in Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, we didn't have anything to do with him. We were rebellious against him. We were his enemies. Christ died for us. Now check this out. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more. Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? If while you were his enemy, he reconciled you to himself, now that you're his child, oh my goodness, that's overwhelming. It's amazing. It's breathtaking. Causes me to be speechless, as Paul is here as he's thinking about these truths. And then the next one here. Therefore, it, it doesn't make sense to think that he would fail to provide you with everything you need between your conversion and your final resurrection. And the Bible just is packed full of examples of that. Uh, Psalm 84, 11. For the God, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's not talking about perfection. He's just talking about people who know him. And he knows. They have a relationship. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. All things are yours. He's talking to us as believers. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Listen to what 
John Flavel says some 350 years ago, this is in Old English, let me see if I can read it here, but he says, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things, Romans 8.32. How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spiritual, spiritual things or temporals from his people? How shall we not, how shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly? and glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, and deliver them? Surely if he would not spare his own son one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that ever he should after this deny or withhold from his people for whose sakes all this was suffered any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is good for them. Pretty profound. Here's the last point. When you give way to excessive anxiety and anger and depression, you are committing an act of gospel irrationality. It goes against the logic of heaven Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious. Don't be stressed out about your life saying, what, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? That's, that's the, what stress looks like, going here from there, being torn back and forth. For the Gentiles, he's saying, for the unbelievers seek after all these things. That's, that's, a, that's what an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know God, acts that anxious. And he says, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Last story. Band's going to come up. We're going to end with a big, big note with this song, If God is For Us, we're gonna blow the roof off of this place celebrating our God. But in Anne Voskamp's book, 1,000 Gifts, she shares her journey, listen to me, she shares her journey to understand the senseless death of her sister crushed by a truck at the age of two. In the end, she concluded that the primary issue is whether we trust God's character. Is he really loving? Is he really just? Her conclusion, listen to her conclusion, God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips, how will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. Let's pray. So Father God, help us now to apply these truths specific to where our hearts are most restless, so whether we, whether we are struggling relationally or spiritually or financially or physically, whatever it might be, help us to see that if you are for us, no one or nothing can thwart your purposes for our lives and our total satisfaction in you. And if you didn't spare your own cherished son, you will most definitely not spare us anything that is for our good 
and your glory. Help us to believe it, celebrate it, and live like it for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Stand with us as we conclude.